We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Welcome back, everybody. Steven Suspidel coming to you once again with your favorite series on the channel, the Socialism Series with Michael Graney. Welcome, Michael, back for our 11th episode. Is it 11 already? I lost count, but I think it's 11. <laughs> well, that's one more than you have fingers, so I can, I can understand that. <laughs> I need the count from Sesame Street. Well, take off your shoes. You know? Yes. <laughs> the number of the day, 11. <laughs> so what is today? Today we have saving solidarism, which a lot of people unfortunately have taken as just a, a form of Christian socialism, very incorrectly in my opinion. This is going to be another one of those shows where you hear me say, in my opinion, quite a bit. Of course, you should insert that a lot anyway, since I'm saying stuff that a lot of people aren't going to agree with from the very beginning, especially when it's a fact. They're fake news, everything is fake these days. Was that your opinion or? <laughs> well, that, that's a fact, so it's my opinion. <laughs> that, that's like my, the poor little old neighbor lady I used to take shopping, and she would say something like, the air is bad today, and her neighbor would say, well, that's your opinion. She says, it's not an opinion, it's a fact. In a heavy southern accent. <laughs> Bless her heart. Never tick off one of those southern ladies, I don't know. If, if, if they don't have muskets, they have hat pins. <laughs> anyway, to return to our subject, <clears throat> the uh, probably the, the first solidarist, so-called, was a fellow named Emil, David Emil Durkheim. Uh, he was a, a descendant of the, of the people who brought you the new things, like Henri de Saint-Simon, uh, Charles Foyer, uh, not so much de Lamennais. He was he was too Catholic for Durkheim's taste. Durkheim was an atheist. He was a modernist, a socialist, and he called himself a solidarist, which to him was a variety of fascist collectivism, uh, which unfortunately rather colored people's attitude toward what solidarity means. Uh, he was, as I said, he was inspired by the Saint Simonians. Uh, he had some strange ideas about music that I won't get into because I don't understand them a bit, even though I've been singing in choruses ever since the Notre Dame Glee Club in the 1970s, and before that in high school. Uh, and to Durkheim, he was kind of an atheist believer, if that makes any sense. He thought that religion is the group's worship of itself, that religion is a social phenomenon, not a spiritual one and that God is actually a divinized society. Now, that isn't just my opinion, that's Fulton Sheen. I got that out of, I think it was his second book, Religion Without God, where people tried, basically the new Christianity, you know, the, the democratic religion of socialism, which of course its theology is modernism, 
and its development is this esotericism, you know, the, the new age type of thing. Uh, <clears throat> to, as far as Fulton Sheen was concerned, a lot of the problems in the church today, especially socialism and its, its mirror image communism and the problems with capitalism were all the result of these new things, although he didn't put it that way. What he did, what Fulton Sheen did was, especially in his first book, his doctoral thesis, he flipped what, what modern philosophy has done is turn everything on its head so that collective man is on top rather than the bottom and God is at the bottom rather than on the top. And the poor boob, the actual human person is stuck in the middle, either being dictated to by the collective or trying to get God to do his work for him which I, I got news for you, it ain't gonna happen. God is not our servant. Uh, now, along came Heinrich Pesch. He was, a, he was a Jesuit, back when the Jesuits were good. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, Make Jesuits uh, great again. <laughs> I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> uh, and so what, uh, that, Durkheim was also considered one of the first sociologists by, by many people. In my opinion, that was Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a bit sounder on many things, including religion, than Durkheim ever was. But still, Durkheim gets the credit for it. He had better publicity and everything else. And what Dirk, excuse me. <coughs> so what, what Pesh, I meant to say, what, what Pesh, did was he saw some good ideas in Durkheim. I mean, there's no such thing as a completely bad idea. There has to be something good in it somewhere or it wouldn't appeal to people. Because as Aristotle pointed out in the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics, here's your philosophy lesson for the day, all things tend to the good. If something tends to the bad, it's either because someone has a bad has the wrong idea of good or He's choosing the lesser of two evils. He sees that a great thinks that a greater evil will come if he doesn't do this bad thing instead of the good thing. So by nature, no one, according to Aristotle, no one ever truly does wrong, meaning to do wrong, because you do wrong thinking it's good. I mean, have you ever read Mein Kampf? Hitler thought he was the savior of the world. He didn't think he was doing evil. Of course, quite a few people might disagree with that, but according to Hitler, he was a savior of mankind. Now, what Pesch did was take the good ideas in Durkheim's solidarism, the few that were there, and, and corrected them to be consistent with Catholic social thought and also with, 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 with sound Aristotelian Thomas philosophy. So what he did was start with Taparelli's principle of social justice. Remember Taparelli? Back in the 1830s and 40s, he came up with the principle of social justice, excuse me, which meant that your actions in society should adhere to the natural law. And of course, he was a good Jesuit too, to the teaching, to the magisterium of the church, so that your social end as well as your individual ends should conform to this. He did not see social justice as a particular virtue, but as a principle guiding 
the exercise of the individual virtues and indirectly society as a whole. Okay, that will be on the test. <laughs> now, uh, so what Pesh, by aligning these things with, with Taparelli, you know, uh, aligning the, solidar the good solidarist principles with Taparelli's principle of social justice and with natural law and with Thomist philosophy and, of course, the magisterium of the church, he transforms solidarism from Durkheim's, I have trouble remembering his name for some strange reason, Durkheim's fascist socialist version of solidarism, and it was a, a, a status totalitarian philosophy, basically, and he realigned it to a more natural law person-centered, you know, personalist system, but without making it individualist. It's, it's a very fine line to, to, to tread sometimes, because as far as many people are concerned, there's only collectivism or individualism. And you'll see this when we get to the critiques of, of, of Pesh, especially from Ludwig von Mises, who thought that anything social was automatically socialist, which is as artificial. I mean, the individual as an isolated being is as artificial a construct as the collective. They're, they're both ideas in people's minds that they have a part of the truth, but it's not the whole truth. The, the, the human person is what Aristotle called a political animal, a, a, a being with an individual nature and a social nature that Aristotle called political, not social, but that, that's another lecture of its own there. <laughs> now you know Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics and the politics. You can pass a course on, on philosophy 101 now. Here you can. Uh, <clears throat> Anyway, like, like, frankly, as, as Chesterton uh, did, Pesh has been reinterpreted by you know, a lot of modern thinkers as basically conforming to the very new things that he was opposing. So that you'll find Heinrich Pesh being called everything but a socialist in name, especially by his latter-day followers, not, not his direct students many of whom have gained some degree of renown, but they've been swept under the rug over in the past 30 or 40 years, especially with the death of the last one. I think, I think his last student to survive was uh, Oswald Funnell Breunin, also a Jesuit. And I think he died in the late 90s at the age of over 100, I think. I mean, I guess thinking good thoughts keeps you alive a long time. <laughs> Or maybe it's that German beer. I don't know. Be going for a while. <clears throat> anyway, uh, to 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 Heinrich Pesch, society is not a mere voluntary aggregate of individuals. You know, like in, in Lockean philosophy. Now, John Locke and Algernon Sidney had good ideas, but they weren't completely there because to them, the state of nature was outside of society. Whereas to Aristotle and Aquinas and to Bellarmine and others, man's natural state is in society. He is a political animal, not social, political. The socialists want to call him a social animal, but that's something different. Uh, so that society for, for Heinrich Pesch and in solidarism then is not you know, just an aggregate of individuals who come together for some purpose, usually protection of property or to gain some advantage. And I, that's another whole lecture there on how 
uh, Lockean philosophy combined with Catholic philosophy developed American liberal democracy as something distinct. A lot of people think that what the founding fathers had in the United States was derived exclusively from John Locke and Algernon Sidney and with a, with a nod toward uh, Montesquieu, but that's not correct. There's things in there that aren't in Locke and Sidney. But uh, as I said, another lecture, many, many digressions here. Uh, although I did see a comment on one of the videos that says, gee, you should do videos on all the digressions too. I said, oh, I gotta sleep sometime, you know? <laughs> I like to eat, take a nap. Play with the kids. Well, that too. I do a little bit too much of that, but I'm I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, anyway, it's and it's and it's not an <coughs> excuse me, amorphous collective independent society. Uh, it's not an amorphous collective that's independent of individuals, but it's a union of individuals all working toward common goals, and but without prejudice to individual goals. The the ta the task of politics as Aristotle would put it, is to reconcile public goals and individual goals so that you can optimize both, not one to the detriment of the other, but to maximize both. Because you can't just do whatever you want without consideration for others, period. But then others can't do what they want to you just to get what they want either. It, it's a two-way street, which is what politics is, the art of the possible. <clears throat> So what solidarity does is orient individual and common goals so that they work together rather than against each other. So that Pesh defined solidarism as, <clears throat> excuse me, the reciprocity and mutuality of human interests based on the rational nature of the human personality and ultimately on God's will. So of course, but of course that actually puts nature and the intellect above the will, because to understand God's will, you have to be solidly grounded in reason and the intellect. And that gets us back into that old medieval thing. The intellect or the will is the basis of natural law, which is, of course, another digression we will get into today. <laughs> You're getting crashed courses and everything. This is one of the reasons why it's taken so long to get to this point in this series, because we have to fill in all these blanks so that I can just make references to the stuff we said before without having to go into endless digressions. I just go into digressions endlessly rather than end, end, endless digressions. Okay. <clears throat> now, Pesh, in common with Aristotle, Aquinas, and Leo XIII, he viewed widespread capital ownership as essential to the functioning of a just social order. A lot of people who call themselves solidarists today, you know, they, they, they downplay that or they ignore it or they simply claim he meant something else by that, but he didn't as we will see in a moment. Uh, however, I think that the main reason a lot of people you know, ignore private property is because they don't understand it. You have to understand that property is not the thing owned. It is the right to be an owner that is inherent in every single human being as part of human nature. It is absolute in that sense, but it is, not that alone. That's only one part of property. The other part of property is the socially determined and limited rights of what you may do with what you own. See, the right to be an owner is absolute. What you may do as an owner is limited, even to what you may own at times. 
I mean, if the right to be an owner uh, extended to what you may do with what you own or what you may own, then you could own an atomic bomb and do whatever you want with it, which of course is completely ludicrous. Uh, now, the, right, so, so property is basically two things. It is not the thing owned. I shouldn't use thing so many times because thing means res, but it also, I'm using it very colloquially to, to refer to what I'm talking about. Property is the right to be an owner, which is absolute, and the socially determined and limited rights of what an owner, how an owner may exercise ownership. Now, property was so important to Pesh that he called it one of the three institutional pillars of economic society. Now, this is interesting because, and I, and I realized this just this morning as I was going over my notes, remember the new things, uh, you know, the democratic religion of socialism called for the abolition of private property, the abolition of marriage and family, uh, and the abolition of organized religion and traditional forms of the state. So we now we get to what were Pesh's three institutional pillars of economic society, private property, marriage and family, and the state as the guardian of the legal owner. Now, because he was writing a book on economics, he didn't bring in religion too many times, but he did bring in a lot of natural law, but he didn't bring in organized religion because he wanted to you know, focus on economics, which is not a theological thing. It's a, it's a philosophical thing and a social thing. So if you look at Pesh's three institutional pillars, they are constructed specifically, in my opinion, to directly counter what the socialists, the modernists, and the new agers were promoting. So in other words, instead of abolishing private property, he said private property is essential. Instead of abolishing marriage and family, he said, well, they are essential pillars of society. And instead of changing the whole form of the state to take over everything or abolish it completely, depending on which socialist you're talking to, they either want absolute control or they say the state is gonna wither away the way Marx thought it would. The state has a, an essential role, but nowhere near as great as a lot of people think. It is to maintain the common good, the institutions, and it's, it's basically the guardian of the legal order. Now, what's interesting is in, in what we here at the Center for Economic and Social Justice call the just third way of economic personalism, we recognize four pillars of a just economic society, an economically just society. And they correlate in a, in, a, in a way, you can't exactly equate four and three together, but if you read them and understand what Pesh was doing and then look at the four pillars, you can say, oh yeah, they correlate. It's just stated differently. So what we say is there should be a limited economic role for the state. In other words, it's not the state's role to take care of everybody. It's the state's role to provide access to the means to, for people to take care of themselves, except as an expedient and emergency when the state may have to step in, which is what Leo XIII pointed out in Rerum Novarum at the very beginning, which some people took as, oh, the state must always take care of everybody. No, that's not what it means. Uh, the second pillar in the, in the just third way uh, is free and open markets. Now, within a strong juridical system, 
that doesn't mean laissez-faire anything goes. What it means is that a, a free market is one that people can com compete on equal terms and to which they have equal access to the, to the opportunity and means to participate in the market. And Pesh also stressed that, but he didn't call it one of the pillars of an economically just society. I, I, from the way he wrote, I think that he just kind of took it for granted that you would have a free and open market. Since he was clearly rejecting socialism and capitalism both, what's left but a market where people are, you know, enter on more or less equal terms. And then the third pillar of an economically just society, according to the just third way of economic personalism, I wish we could come up with really short terms for these things, but uh, is to restore the rights of private property. Yeah, your acronym now, is like SHIELD. It's got this gigantic long... <laughs> well, wait till you find out that the acronym for all this is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> uh, SUP for short. Yeah. Now, restoring the rights of private property, uh, one of the things that if you've studied business history, you'll find out is that shareholders and corporations have very few rights. They are legally and nominally the owners of those corporations, but they don't have any right to get those dividends, but they own it. Well, you can go sell your shares. Yo, big deal. You mean I have the right to change from being an owner to a, to a non-owner? What control do most shareholders have of the corporations they own? Very little. Even the employee stock ownership plan, which was invented by Lewis Kelso back in, I think he got the earliest ideas in the 1930s, but anyway, to figure out a way that non-owning workers could come to own the corporations that employed them, because it got stuck in under retirement law, and the idea of retirement law is that businesses should take care of workers because they're too dumb to take care of themselves. Unless an ESOP specifically passes through the vote and the board of directors allow the ESOP to take the dividends that it allegedly owns and distributed them to the workers who allegedly own them as beneficial owners, Ordinary workers, even with an ESOP, don't have the right to vote and they don't have the right to receive dividends unless the board of directors says you can. So you're not really owners, are you? Because ownership is control in all codes of law. Now, okay, getting away from that speech. Uh, but to, to resume our, our, from our digression, yes. Pesh's three pillars of an, econo of, of, of an economic society or a just economy correlate to what the, the adherents of the new things were trying to abolish. Uh, now let's look at the, his, you know, his, what he viewed as the role of the state because there's a lot of people today who think that what Pesh was talking about was a state controlled economy, but that is not what he was talking about. He really did advocate a very limited economic role for the state. And, and this is important to understand solidarism. Uh, in fact, in common with Bishop Wilhelm Emanuel von Kettler, who was a, an important social thinker in the 19th century, Pesch was very cautious about admitting even a role for the state because he knew that the tendency, especially since he was in Germany, he knew how the tendency was for the state to take over things. Uh, it, so 
he cautiously admitted a, a, a role for the state or some other social body for public material welfare. And it may on occasion, not must, may offer assistance to individuals and non-public social groups, you know, under the principle of double effect. Now, of course, everybody knows what the principle of double effect is, right? That's where you may not do an objectively evil act for any reason, even to obtain the greatest good. But what if something that you want to do to gain a very good thing has an unintended and inadvertent evil effect? In other words, suppose you have uh, a bullet in you. And to get that bullet out, the surgeon has to cut into you. Well, cutting into you can cause pain, especially if you don't get any anesthetic. And there is a danger to it. But if you don't get that bullet out, you will die. So under the principle of double effect, the surgeon can remove the bullet, risking your life to do so, but you will certainly die if it isn't taken out. But never may you do something that is objectively evil or May you do something under the principle of double effect in order to obtain the evil effect that is supposed to be unintended. In other words, if you had a surgeon who knows that you don't have a really have a bullet in your leg, but he just wants to cut you open. I mean, for vivisection or whatever. So he pretends that would be misuse of the principle of double effect and would turn what would otherwise be an unintended evil into something objectively evil. So there's your course of moral philosophy for today. <laughs> of course, Pesh didn't call it the principle of double effect. I think he called it a matter of double causation. You know, these philosophers, they can't say anything simply, you know. Now, uh, for Pesh, and uh, I'll, I'll quote from uh, this fellow, what's his name? Richard Mulcahy, who was an expert in the, in the, in the, in the economics of, of Heinrich Pesch back in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, he, in fact, he wrote a book called Economic Freedom in Pesch. And this quote is from an article that he put in a, a special edition of a magazine called Social Order in 1951 on the 25th anniversary of Pesch's death. And he said, the goal of social economy does not involve a full provision for all the wants of all the citizens. And th this is according to Pesh, or at least Mulcahy's reading of Pesh, which I happen to agree with in this instance. I found some things in Mulcahy I didn't agree with. Uh, to assign such a goal to the economic system would be to demand, in effect, the very disappearance of the problem of economy itself. In other words, if you say that solidarism means that the state takes care of everybody under all circumstances, well, that's not what Pesh was talking about. And in fact, what you've just said is that you've just eliminated the science of economics. In fact, I do know some people who call themselves solidarists who claim that economics is not even a science. What it is is just an excuse to control other people depending on who has property, whether the state under socialism or the capitalists under capitalism. And a number of, one, at least one of these individuals has made quite a name for himself by claiming that the science of economics is not a science. And in fact, the way he talks about it, it's not even economics, but uh, that's another whole issue. What was it? It was similar like, you know, Emmanuel Monnier's personalism 
which is a personalism without persons, the way he defined it. It, it was so strange when I finally figured out what he was talking about in his personal manifesto. Now, to reiterate and to stress this, Pesh was not a socialist. He was not saying that the state needs to take over. The state does not need to control the economy, except when absolutely necessary. And that people cannot, not necessary, whether they will not is another issue. But if they cannot, then the state may step in if there's no absolutely no other recourse. Pesh was very cautious. He was very suspicious of the state. Of course, you have to realize that at the time when he was writing, socialism was spreading like wildfire in Germany and Austria. And then after he died, it really just went hog wild through Austria, especially. I think some guy I read said that there were something like 30 some schools of Catholic socialism in Austria alone after, the, after World War I. Yeah. And you wonder how national socialism managed to, to gain such a foothold, both in Germany and Austria after the Anschluss. Anyway, as Pesch put it, he said, social economy must be organized on a basis of private enterprise and considerable freedom to compete in productive activity and in the determination of one's consumption pattern in order to allow for self-responsibility. This is why I say that Pesch that, that solidarism, and this is why you also find John Paul II talking about solidarity and personalism. John Paul II's doctoral, doctoral thesis was on personalism. And so we find in Pesh a reorientation of what Durkheim was talking about from the collective and the state to the human person. In other words, to allow for the development of the human person to become more virtuous which of course was what, was what Aristotle was talking about. It is the whole reason for Catholic social teaching itself or even philosophy to become more fully human. What is, the, what is the best system to help people become virtuous? Not that will take care of them for the rest of their lives, not what, that will make them better business people or better workers or better this, that, or that thing, but better human beings that will make them more fully human. And this, if you, you know, look at Pesh, even in a bad translation, if you can filter out, unfortunately, most translations of Pesh are so, are, were done by socialists. But if you can filter it out and you can, you know, look at Pesh from the, from, from within the context of what is best for the human person to become more virtuous, you'll get him. Even though he throws those big giant German words all through the, the thing. My, my German is so bad that I can't even read through a sentence without getting the dictionary and trying to figure out, well, gee, what does that word mean? And then half the time the dictionary gets it wrong anyway, because Pesh was using words in a different way. I mean, I trying to understand Aquinas, you, you run across the same thing because Aquinas was using old words in new ways. I have a dictionary this thick in small print on how Aquinas used Latin differently. And I thought, and I started looking at that. Well, it's a good thing I don't know Latin very well. I'd probably go nuts trying to understand it. <laughs> anyway, to, to continue, for, for, for Pesh, the state's immediate product, that means indirect product or indirect action of enabling citizens to secure their own welfare is subordinate to the immediate product. So we're getting into all these technical philosophical terms like immediate and immediate. You really have to stop to think what these words mean. 
Mediate means indirect or removed, and immediate means direct or not, you know, right there with the person. It's immediate. Uh, there's no, you know, intervening agency, action, transaction, or whatever. And the immediate product of the state enabling citizens to do for themselves is subordinate to the immediate product of it being the state's duty to, to help citizens take care of themselves, to secure their own welfare. I mean, if you remain, if, if the state takes care of you for the rest of your life, or your parents do so, you're always going to be a, be a child, undeveloped. You're always going to be a dependent. And in fact, this, you know, slight digression here, but rather important if we ever get to the parable of the talents, one of these, we could we do a whole show on that. But the Roman idea of slavery was completely different from that of the Greeks. The only legal difference between a man and a slave in Rome was the fact of slavery. In theory, a Roman slave owner's duty was to prepare that slave to become a full member of society, which is why if you were going to be a slave and had no hope of emancipation, be the slave of a Greek because he'll treat you kindly because you're less than he is, and it's a, a person's duty to be kind to animals. A Roman is going to be extremely harsh to his slaves because he's supposed to try to train them up to be to be as good as he is. Unfortunately, so stupid they are that most of them don't get it. I mean, but as I said, that's another speech there. Now, in common with the popes, Pesh, and we're, and we're back on property now because property is such an important part of solidarism and of course of personalism that he very carefully distinguished, as the popes do in the encyclicals, between access and use. A friend of mine, uh, Father Matthew Habiger, he used to head up Human Life International. His doctoral thesis was on papal teachings on private property. And the first time I read it, I couldn't understand what he meant by all, he kept emphasizing in every chapter how each pope had distinguished between access and use. Well, of course, once I discussed it with my associate, Norm Curlin, who's a lawyer, I found out what he meant. Access means the right to something, and use means the exercise of it, so that you have the absolute right to be alive. You have the right to life, and that is absolute. But once you're alive, does that mean you can do anything you want to anybody you want or to anything you want? No, of course not. So in Catholic teaching, and of course in solidarism, uh, access is what you know, the moral philosophers call the generic right of dominion. And use is the universal destination of all goods. Now you talk to most Catholics, and most of them will think that those are both the same thing. And they're a fancy way of saying socialism. Because they, they do sound kind of socialist. The generic right of dominion, the universal destination of all goods, they are actually very different from each other. Generic right of dominion means that it's part of you to have dominion. The right to be an owner is generic, meaning of the genus. It doesn't mean like generic goods or something that are low quality or something. It means that it is part of what you are 
It is part of human nature to be an owner, to have dominion over something. Remember in Genesis, when God gave dominion over the earth to Adam and all his descendants and so on. That does not mean that he gave everything to Adam as personal private property. What it meant was that what he gave Adam was the right to go out and create private property in something or to take over something and make it his own or whatever. How Anything by means of which you create a legitimate ownership right in something comes under the generic right of dominion. Now, this is distinguished from use, the universal destination of all goods. Now that sounds pretty socialist until you realize that what it governs is exercise, not access. You may not, in, in the crudest possible understanding of the universal destination of all goods, you may not use what you own to harm others. That means whenever you use something, you may not think just of your own benefit. You know, if I take this, this club and hit this thing, I will have dinner. You know, I, I found this animal here and I want to eat it. So I hit it over the head using my club to secure my dinner for tonight. Well, you can't just do that because you have to ask yourself first, wait a minute, does this animal that I want to eat belong to somebody else? And if I take it myself, I can't just use my goods, my, my tools, my club to take this animal and eat it myself without considering the rights of the owner of that animal. I can't just do it. Now, that's on the crudest possible level right there. But what about other groups. If I go and I start just taking, you know, killing other people's livestock for my benefit, that sets a pattern for the community. In other words, he does it, why can't I? So that affects the group. Now, if that behavior becomes, you know, acceptable throughout the whole society, you've, you've harmed the common good through your misuse of your right to exercise, you know, your to use your tool as you see fit. So you may not use what you own to harm other individuals, other groups, or the common good as a whole. That's what the universal destination of all goods means. Not that everybody can take whatever they want whenever they want. See, these are very subtle concepts that are phrased in ways that are not often easy to understand unless you sit down and think about them. You can't just have some glib uh, interpretation so that somebody, whether capitalist or socialist, can get what he wants, or she, for that matter. That <clears throat> solidarism, and this is, this is another quote here, and I just got off track here. Where am I? Oh, yeah. I think these are, okay, here we begin the direct quotes from Pesh, translated into English. Uh, so Pesh distinguish clearly between access and use or the generic right of dominion and the universal destination of all goods. And so that this is how you must understand what he said about property. He says, property signifies power, but limited power. It is subordinate to the moral and legal order. In other words, by nature, no one can prevent you from being an owner. But once you're an owner, you are what you do is subordinate to the moral and the legal order. I mean, you, you can't just buy a submachine gun and start shooting up store windows or something. 
course, if you've been watching the untouchable reruns like I have, you kind of figure that's what people do anyway. But <laughs> uh, property is a right, but it's not the highest right that would place the material world above the world of men. In other words, the, the, the triad of natural rights that they usually cite, excuse me, <coughs> life, liberty, and private property. Property is probably the most immediate one of those, because if you don't have property, you're going to be dependent on some other people to sustain your life and protect your liberty. But that doesn't, but property is not thereby above life and liberty. It's actually the lowest one. It just happens to be the most immediate one. Now, and then property is not an end in itself. In other words, if it were an end in itself, then the more the better. Just keep on accumulating as fast and as furious as you can. But rather, it is a means to an end, namely the ordered providing for the needs of all men living in society. Now, there's not a single one of those three points that I just mentioned that socialists have not been able to twist into an excuse for socialism. But if you carefully place them within natural law theory, the principle of social justice as Tapparelli, you know, posited it, and the magisterium of the church, you'll see that a socialist interpretation cannot be sustained for those three points. You, you can't just, you know, interpret Catholic social teaching or frankly anything else any way you want just to get what you want. The end does not justify the means, even in academia or even in trying to understand Catholic social teaching. Now, uh, so to continue the quote, uh, this is actually from Mulcahy, sorry, I, I didn't, I, I think I said Pesh, but this is from, you know, Richard Mulcahy's. The social duty referred to embraces more than charity, which provides for the individual needs of the poor, or the obligation to pay taxes, which is like the bare minimum you need to be able to subsist in, in society. Well, you know, obey the law and pay your taxes. Well, that's kind of a, an absolute minimum, and you're not really being human when you're doing that. You're just kind of there. So it also implies the duty to use one's property for the furthering of the common welfare. See, the, gener uh, the universal destination of all goods. How you use something, you must not only consider just your own benefit, but that of society as a whole. In, in that sense, there's no such thing as an individual act because nobody operates in a vacuum. But then there's no such thing as a purely collective act either because an individual still has responsibility for everything he does. Unless of course you can say that, well, somebody had a gun at my back and I'd better do it otherwise I'd have been dead. And I figured doing that was better than being dead. In other words, choosing the lesser of two evils. Although, this, this being an election year, have you, have you seen the, uh, the posters for, what was it, H.P. Lovecraft's Clothlu, I think that's how you pronounce it? It says, Clothlu for president, why choose the lesser evil? It's supposed to be this nameless horror from the before time. <laughs> so, I haven't seen that one yet, no. <laughs> look, look it up, it's, it's hilarious. It comes out every four years. They say, vote the elder party, meaning the elder gods, you know, this absolute evil from before time began. They want to, you know, eat men's souls and, you know, destroy everything. <laughs> I see a giant meteor. 
Yeah. Oh, no, this is much more fun. I'm, I'm not a big fan of horror. I only know it because of the jokes about it. Now, but now, now we get to Franz Miller. I think that, see, I, I think he dies slightly. He, he was a student of Heinrich Pesch. And he was a member of this organization called the Königswinterkreis, which was composed mostly of students of Heinrich Pesch, which we'll get to in a minute. And either he or Oswald von Neubreunen were the last ones to survive. Very prominent. Uh, Mueller came, escaped from the Nazis and came to this country. I think he taught at St. Louis University. I'm, I, 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 I'm not sure. It's not that important. Uh, well, it is important, but it's not important for this show. Uh, this is from an article that he wrote called I Knew Heinrich Pesch. This was in that, that, the, that issue of the magazine I spoke of before that Mulcahy published in, in 1951. And it was, I knew Heinrich Pesch, the formative influence of a human scholar. He put human scholar in quotes. He said, needless to say, Father Pesch rejected the socialist identification of capitalism with the institution of private property and with free enterprise. In other words, he didn't just according to Franz Müller, who was an economist himself, uh, Heinrich Pesch did not simply assume that there are only two things that exist in the universe, socialism and capitalism. There, you can have free enterprise without capitalism and you can have private property without capitalism. So there is a third alternative. We call our version of what Pesch was talking about the just third way of economic personalism, which we think is fully consistent with what he was saying, except for some minor tweaks here and there. Uh, like having three pillars instead of four, you know, what's the matter, can he count to four? Uh, but to continue with Miller's quote, he says, but he also objected to the notion that the essence of capitalism consists merely in the extensive use of capital goods. Now, uh, you know, the produced means of production. Uh, this was actually a mistake that Lewis Kelso and Mortimer Adler made in their book, The Capitalist Manifesto, lousy title except when you consider that it, that it was you know, published you know, in the wake of the McCarthy hearings. And so the Capitalist Manifesto was such a great title that it's been copied like 20 or 30 times by other people, but Kelso and Adler were the first ones who did it. You know, this is Mortimer Adler and Lewis Kelso who invented the ESA. And in it, he defined capitalism as the intensive use of capital goods. Well, as uh, Chesterton pointed out, and one point he says, well, if the use of capital is capitalism, then everything is capitalism. As frankly, Cap Kelso defined capital as the non-human factor of production. So that, well, yeah, how do you produce without using capital somehow? So everything under Kelso's definition would actually be capitalism. There'd be no such thing as socialism. So we reject that. Okay. Anyway, both the, as a result, of course, both the capitalists and the socialists rejected Pesch's theories. Surprise, surprise. Uh, for instance, Ludwig von Mises, uh, and I have issues with what he said here, says, full implementation of the solidarist institutional prescription, German, you can't say anything easily, can only lead to socialism. There can be no doubt about the crypto-socialist character of solidarism. Well, of course, you have to understand that to von Mises, any social action was socialism. I mean, he wasn't quite an anarchist, but he was, certainly was an individualist. Now, that's not to say that there aren't a lot of good things in Austrian economics, but the orientation is off. 
I think of all the currency principal schools of economics, probably the Austrian comes close to being rational, but that doesn't mean it's the most rational thing that could be. Now, socialists, for their part, condemned solidarism, especially Pesce's version of it anyway, as crypto-capitalism. You know, where Ludwig von Mises was saying it was crypto-socialist, the socialists were saying it was crypto-capitalist for its disguised individualism and its emphasis on private property. I thought, well, I got news for you. Uh, Pesce's individualism wasn't actually disguised because it wasn't really individualism, nor was it collectivism, which is what the socialists were complaining about. It was actually a form of personalism, not individualism or collectivism, but personalism focused on the human person, which remember, as I said, if you really want to understand Pesce, and of course, John Paul II, and virtually the whole of Catholic social teaching, think of it in personalist terms, the dignity of the human person. That's what you focus on, and that's how you'll understand Catholic teaching in the proper way. It is not socialist, nor is it capitalist. It's personalist. Excuse me. And so what, what did Stephen Pesh say? Yeah. Okay, yeah. This is the trouble with being blind and getting off on digressions all the time here. Okay, so as, and I think I've finally got to, to quotes from Pesh here. <laughs> I'm sorry to overload things with, with quotes, but these people say things so much better than I do that I have to, if you're gonna steal, steal from the best. Okay, solidarism, and sorry about the, the, you know, the big, long academic Germanic type words here. Solidarism is the sociological legal organizing principle of the national economy. It refuses to tolerate either an individualistic or a collectivist society. In other words, it's more personalist. It demands the sort of community in which the objectives of social solidarity can be realized. So in other words, don't go sliding into collectivism. Don't go running into individualism. There's something else there that is neither, but may have elements that are true from both of them. So solidarism does not want a nationwide system of economic cooperation, in other words, a controlled economy, but a unified private economy with the degree of autonomy compatible with the general welfare, in short, a system in which widely shared sentiments produce a strong feeling of togetherness. Now, that right there was the weakness that one of CESJ's co-founders saw in Pesh. He did not see a, a particular act, this is Father William Faree. He did not see a particular act of social justice, you know, doing, you know, improving on what Taparelli was talking about, to Taparelli, social justice was just a, a general principle. To Pius XI and as Father Faree analyzed him, social justice was a particular virtue. So that Pesh in his solidarism was relying on a feeling of togetherness. Well, that's not quite enough. What you need are actual institutional supports. You can't just rely on emotion. It's, it's not gonna work because it's, it's too easy to slide into new age garbage and even collectivism or individualism because those are all much more emotional and emotion based than true personalism, which has to take into account human nature, not just human feelings. 
Now, as as Pesh concluded, and, and these are these are this is a quote from his uh, Lehrbuch de something, the Nuts Early Economy. Let me see if I can, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, Lehrbuch der National Economy came out in 1905. See, I can say it, I just, I just don't remember. <laughs> it says, the general welfare is not produced by an automatic mechanism, but is a goal toward which we are all obliged to work. That's good, but it's not precise enough. It, it's, it's too vague, it, it's too feeling-ish. Is that even a word? <laughs> But anyway, that, that's from the first volume of his, of his Lehrbuch, which Lehrbuch is German for, I guess the translation is textbook. Uh, now, so as you can see, the, but that wasn't the only problem with, with solarism as Pesch put it together. It, he also didn't say how you're to get private property. And that was a serious weakness because he was based on past savings. And that was the same problem we saw in the last show with Chesterton and Belloc and distributism, is that if you rely on past savings to finance new capital formation for you know, the broad mass of people, either you're talking socialism or some other, or a weird form of capitalism that gives the benefits of ownership to people without there being owners. It, 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 you, you can't rely on a, on a system of past savings. Uh, so that the problems with Pesh's solidarism were the same as they were with Chesterton and Belloc's distributism, which is ironic because I know of at least one prominent solidarist who ridiculed distributism on the grounds that it was too romantic. Well, then you didn't understand Pesh's solidarism either, did you? Now, I found that, and I, I, I should say, we, because I'm not the only one, uh, that both Pesh and Chesterton and Belloc had an inadequate understanding of money. And I'm going to inflict another quote on you. This is from Lewis Kelso and Patricia Hedder Kelso, uh, Two Factor Theory, a book that came out in 1967. And see, most people think of money and credit as a commodity. It's not. It's a means of carrying out transactions. So this is the way Kelso put it. He said, money is not a part of the visible sector of the economy. People do not consume money. Money is not a physical factor of production, but rather a yardstick for measuring economic input, economic outtake, and the relative values of the real goods and services of the economic world. Money provides a method of measuring obligations, rights, powers, and privileges. It provides a means whereby certain individuals can accumulate claims against others or against the economy as a whole or against many economies. It is a system of symbols that many economists substitute for the visible sector and its productive enterprise goods, enterprises, goods and services, thereby losing sight of the fact that a monetary system is only a part of the invisible sector of the economy and that its adequacy can only be measured by its effect upon the visible sector. Okay. To simplify that, uh, and Adam Smith's first principle of, of economics was consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. Why produce something if you're not going to consume it? And how can you consume something that hasn't been produced? And from this, you get Say's law of markets, which is that 
you know, very ultra simplified, in fact, oversimplified as production equals income and therefore production equals consumption, supply generates its own demand and demand its own supply. What that means in English is that, you know, absent charity or theft or some, uh, some other form of redistribution, there's only one way that you can consume something and that is to produce it. Either you have to produce it or you produce something to trade to somebody for something that they've produced that you want to consume. Production must precede consumption. So that in order and this mechanism by means of which I exchange what I produce for what you produce is money. Money isn't a thing in and of itself. It's a symbol for the things that we're exchanging. So that to get really esoteric here, the people who think that the amount of money determines the level of economic activity have it exactly backwards. And yet this is Keynes, this is the monetarists, this is the Austrians. What really happens, according to Adam Smith, Jean-Baptiste Say, and a whole bunch of other people whose names mean absolutely nothing to you, is that the level of economic activity determines the amount of money. And so, and that's another whole lecture because there's incredible implications to that for the modern economy, which people have ignored because Keynes said differently. I don't care for Keynes in economics, as you might have guessed. Now, <clears throat> so that the problem with Pesce's solidarism and Chesterton and Bellock's distributism was that it relied on past savings. They thought that you had to be able to accumulate a surplus in order to finance new capital formation so that other people could be owners, but the only people who can afford to save are the rich. So only the rich can be owners. What they did not consider was the possibility of self-liquidating capital. In other words, I go to someone who has something I need that I wanna make into a productive asset and say, I'll pay for this with what the capital produces after it starts producing. Just trust me for the money. This is called credit. And the capital is called self-liquidating because it pays for itself out of its own future assets, on future production. In other words, future savings, not past savings. So that both solidarism and distributism as classically defined got into the catch 22 of expanded ownership without redistribution. It's not gonna be how secure, secure are you in your private property if you only got it by confiscating it from somebody else. You just destroyed property in order to have it, which is a contradiction in terms. Now, <clears throat> nevertheless, Pesh did it an, at an incredible advance in his theories of economics and, his, and in his moral philosophy because it represents an important advance on that of Leo XIII in social ethics which itself expanded on that of, remember, Monsignor Luigi Topparelli and his principle of social justice. So what Pesh added to Leo XIII was an explicit theory of groups that Leo XIII had only implied. You know, in, if you read Rerum Novarum, it, it talks in a way that just kind of assumes organization and working in groups and a theory and, and an institutional theory. And Topparelli didn't even consider it. He just considered the idea that in your individual acts, keep an eye on the common good. You know, don't do anything that's going to harm others and always keep it within the, nat 
confines of the natural law and the magisterium of the church, which is pretty individualistic in a sense. So what Pesch did was add a definite theory of groups to what Leo XIII had added to Taparelli. I'm getting really deep here, so <laughs> we, we won't put that one on the test. So, but also, nevertheless, Pesch's theory of solidarism was not complete. Now, in order to illustrate this, we, we can go to some guy you may be familiar with, Karol Josef Wojtyła, otherwise known as John Paul II. He did his uh, doctoral thesis on personalism, but he also incorporated a lot of solidarism, so much so that some people think that he took it directly from Pesch, but he didn't, because what he did was get something, he must have gotten it either independently developed or from Pius XI, because in his thought, solidarity is not merely, this is John Paul II's thought, is not merely a feeling of togetherness. No, that was the weakness in Pesh. It, it's a feeling of togetherness it, that has an indirect effect on the common good. It is actually, solidarism or solidarity is actually a characteristic of groups as groups, you know, of groups per se. You may have to think about that because it's an important concept. I see you scratching your head there. <laughs> now, as Wojtyla explained, he says, of course, this was after he became Pope, but he was incorporating his earlier thought. He says, solidarity is above all a question of interdependence sensed as a system, as a system determining relationships in the contemporary world. Well, what he's just described there is institutions. See, Pesch was relying on a feeling and John Paul II was putting this within an institutional framework. So uh, as a system of determining relationships in the contemporary world, in its economic, cultural, political, and religious elements, and accepted as a moral category. That's, that's fancy philosopher talk. Of, this, is all, this is actually from Solicitudo Rei Sociales, the, the encyclical, paragraph 38, if you care. Uh, when interdependence becomes recognized in this way, the correlative response as a moral and social attitude, as a, quote, virtue, unquote, is solidarity. In other words, it is a specific identifiable thing that, now, the fact is, in the encyclical, John Paul II put virtue in quotes. Some people have said that because he did that, because he used the word virtue, he was claiming that solidarity is a virtue on the level of you know, justice and charity and the other cardinal and uh, virtues, natural and supernatural virtues. No, he specifically put it in quotes to show that it, it isn't quite on that level. As, as far as the classic virtues are concerned and the social virtues are concerned, solidarity and subsidiarity are principles. They're not true virtues in that sense, but they are like quasi-virtues, which is why John Paul II was careful to put that word in quotes. I, I realize this is getting down to the, was this period in the right place, or where did we put this comma? But I have had people, you know, get absolutely frog-mouthed, white-lipped rage when I said that solidarity was not another word for social charity. It is very strongly related to it, but it is not the same thing. It is not itself a virtue in that sense, even though you can say it is a virtue. 
I mean, I realize we're getting it pretty deep here. So maybe, maybe next time, I, you know, pause the pause the video here, put on your hip waders because it may get even deeper here. Now, Pesce's theory also lacked Pope Pius XI's completed social doctrine with its particular act of social justice that gave direct access to the common good. Pesh could only consider the idea that with this feeling of togetherness, we will try to indirectly reform society so that it becomes more amenable to people acquiring and developing virtue, you know, more fully human. He did not articulate a theory whereby you have a particular virtue of social justice that says we can organize and as members of a group have a direct effect on the common good. This is what Pius XI accomplished. And if you really want to read it, there's, there's free books downloadable on the CESJ website that you'll have to read about a dozen times before you start to understand it. Father Free's doctoral thesis, The Act of Social Justice. And actually, I, I think the next, yeah, the next video will be on this. So uh, maybe just wait for that instead. <laughs> uh, the, with, without that particular act of social justice, however, Pesh's solidarism could only spin its wheels and just kind of hope that individual virtue would have the desired effect, indirect effect on the whole of the common good, which would be nice, but don't count on it because there's other forces acting in society against people even being individually virtuous. I mean, the institutions of society may have deteriorated and degenerated to such an extent that it's actually impossible in human terms to be virtuous without being a martyr. It, it happens. The answer in social justice, of course, is to get organized and restructure the institutions so that you can once again be virtuous. That's what social justice is all about. It's not a substitute for individual virtue. It's a way of making it possible for individual virtue to function once again. And we're coming up to, to the end here. so because we, we pretty much finished off Pesha's solidarism by telling you what's right with it and now what's wrong with it. Uh, the, um, so we, we can close by you know, pointing out, uh, Pesh wrote a series of very important books, uh, some of which have been translated into English, but be cautious because it was done mostly by socialists. Excuse me. Uh, in 1900, Pesh published Liberalismus, Socialismus und Christliche Gesellschaft Ordnung. And Gesellschaft Ordnung always throws me because it's a, it's a really long German compound word meaning basically social order. So it's liberalism, socialism, and Christian social order. That was his first big, his first major book. Uh, his second book was in 1905, which was his magnum opus. It was a five volume gigantic tome, Lehrbuch der National Economy, you know, textbook of the national economy or of national economy. Uh, in 1911, he came out with Die Soziale Befähigung, if I spoke German better, I could get this out quicker. Die Soziale Befähigung der Kirche, the social teachings of the church, loosely. Uh, you'll probably get people coming and say, I speak German and that isn't what he said. But on the next one, I'm, I'm, I'm on more solid ground. In 1918, he came out with a book called 
Ethik und Volkswirtschaft. Now, within the last 20 or 30 years, I don't remember, somebody translated that as ethics and the national and the national economy. That is a bad translation. And this is why you have to be careful when reading English translations of Pesch, because that's not what that title is. Volkswirtschaft is not national economy. National economy is national economy. I mean, a virtual cognate. What Volkswirtschaft means is people's living business, the domestic economy. But if you're a socialist, you don't see any difference between the national economy and domestic economy. You don't see any difference between the, the individual and the collective. That's why I say, be careful of those translations. Now, still, solidarism has had a tremendous impact if you really understand it, especially with its emphasis on the, on the dignity of the human person on the advance of Catholic social teaching. In fact, uh, a fellow, one of Heinrich, uh, Heinrich Pesch's students named Heinrich Roman, who was probably one of Germany's leading jurists before he escaped from the Nazis, uh, was, <clears throat> was co-founder of a discussion group called the Königswinterkreis, the King's Winter Circle discussion group which had also Franz Miller, uh, Oswald von der Braunin, Gustav Goodlock, uh, Goetz Briefs, and a bunch of other people whose names I don't remember. Uh, but in 1931, uh, Gustav Goodlock, who was a, a Jesuit, and Oswald von der Bruyning, a Jesuit, uh, went, to, were, went to Rome to consult with Pius XI on Quadragesimo Anno. Now, you can, if you truly understand Pesch's work, you can distinguish between what Pesch contributed and what is Pius XI's work. There are still some people who insist that it was Oswald von der Bruyning that wrote the whole thing and Pius XI just signed off on it. No, if you really understand the difference between solidarism and what Pius XI was talking about, you can see the clear differences but also where Pius XI built on what Pesh was doing. It's a key element of Quadragesimo Anno and later of Divini Redemptoris, but it's not just lifting what Pesh did and applying it you know, in, in the form of encyclical. That, that's, that's not correct. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, uh, we're the, pretty much the end here. And in conclusion, what we can say is that uh, Pesh's work was immensely important, but unfortunately has been reinterpreted as a form of Christian or Catholic socialism, which is completely the opposite of everything that he intended to do and tried to do. And this was caused by, in my opinion, two things. One, the lack of under a sound understanding of money, which would have you know, permitted him to you know, state a specific means or a particular means whereby people could actually become capital owners rather than just simply say it's a good thing if they could, but we have no way of doing it. And the act of social justice, the particular act of social justice, which was developed by Pius XI, which is what we will go into in the next video. So we have a nice little leader there for the next one. I see what you did there. <laughs> hey, I did I, I knew I, I can't spell segue, but I can say it. <laughs> feel like Captain America. I got that reference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Michael, appreciate it as always. Oh, thank you.